Please be seated. And please open your Bibles, if you have one, to Ephesians chapter 6. If you're visiting online, the notes of the bulletin are on our website under the link. Um, We invite you to join along in this. And we're going to commence our third week of what will be four weeks, looking at ten verses in Ephesians. But they're critical um, and familiar verses. And part of the reason why we got to go slowly is precisely because they're familiar. The armor of the Lord. I have a favorite theme for Children's Church, VBS. It labels you to get nice pictures and things you can color in. And while that's good, the danger with things we're familiar with is that we assume them or we think we understand them when we don't. And so I'd like to begin our time by reading um, Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. And then we'll begin our time studying this passage further. Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Lord God, give us the grace and the faith to receive this command. We are to put on your whole armor. Give us the wisdom to know how to do that. Give us the discipline the faith, the perseverance to do that. Lord, our desire is that we would stand firm, that we would fight well, that we would stay standing. We know we can only do that through your own enabling, through your grace. Help us not to trust in our own devices, but in your full armor. In Jesus' name, amen. i give you a little review of what we've seen in the past two weeks of study. In the first week, we considered the nature of the struggle, the nature of the warfare. Paul emphasizes the scope, the magnitude of the threat we are facing. Um, He's trying to create the need, if you think about it, from a sales perspective. The command's pretty clear. Put on the whole armor of God. And he makes us know why it's important, because our enemy is great. We're, We're in a war, and the war's coming to us. The enemy will attack We have an enemy who has schemes 
the devil himself, his cosmic powers, and Paul reiterates that to understand the, the global conspiracy, the spiritual battle we're taking place in. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our battle is not geopolitical. Our battle is personal. And our battle is primarily defensive. That's, that's why the command is to stand, to stand firm. This is less about an, an invading army gaining ground, but rather a besieged outpost towing the line. That's the nature of our battle. We, we got to understand the battle is about your soul and my soul, my faithfulness, your faithfulness. That's the battle. The enemy will attack in the evil day, and given the scope and the strength of the enemy on our own, we would be slaughtered. We, you got to understand that. If you're just trusting in your own determination, in your own will, you're going to go down. And you're not going to get back up. And so then last week, we looked to the call again in verse 13, take up the whole armor of God. And the armor of God, he lists six pieces of that armor. You could argue seven if you put prayer in. But prayer isn't spoken of metaphorically. It's direct. So we'll say six pieces. We looked at the first three last week. And I want to make a, a comment or two before we go further. Understand the emphasis is on the full armor. The full armor, the whole armor. Even as we look at individual pieces, the armor works when it functions in a holistic whole. There is some overlap in the categories. And Paul will use armor language elsewhere in the New Testament in 1 Thessalonians 5 and switch up the terms. The breastplate of love and faith. So these aren't absolute magic assigned categories. Rather, he's speaking of all of these things as the full armor of God to put on. He's been linking it with Old Testament texts. And we we saw last week that the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness are actually more active categories. It's not God's truth as in Scripture. We're going to see that this week, the sword. But rather, God's truth lived out, absorbed and lived out through you. And righteousness also, not primarily the imputed righteousness of Christ that we receive at salvation, but the righteousness that we live out. I'll I'll show you why I thought that. Just turn back to chapter 4 of Ephesians, verse 20, where he uses the same language to put something on. Remember, this is the model that Paul uses, the paradigm for sanctification. Verse 20 of chapter 4, that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you've heard about him, we're taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self. And what characterizes the new self? Created after the likeness of God in true righteousness or truth of righteousness and holiness. So right there, Paul unites righteousness and truth as what characterizes the new man we're putting on. And so I think that is more the idea he's getting to. The logic being one of the things that will protect us, one of the significant things that will protect us from trial and temptation is a pattern and habit of fidelity and truthfulness, God's truth coming in, absolutely, but then God's truth lived out through us in our own growingly righteous conduct. We're to put on Christ and bear this fruit. And you can understand how, on the one hand, a pattern and a habit of growingly walking in holiness is going to protect you from sudden temptation. On the flip side, if you've been giving into temptation left, right, and center, if you've been compromising in many areas of your life, how are you going to stand firm when the real attack comes? 
So I argued last week the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness are actually things you and I perform. We put them on by walking in faith, walking in holiness. To put it practically, as you're loving your wife or as your wives are loving your husbands, as you're submitting to the government, as you're paying your taxes, as you're obeying God in faith, you're putting on that breastplate of righteousness. You're tying on that belt of truth. Flip it around the other way. As you cheat on your taxes, as you grumble under your breath about your authorities, you're taking them off, practically speaking. These are the things that will protect you from temptation. There's two of the things. And then we saw the shoes shod, your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace as your readiness to speak God's words of life to yourself and to others. And this came out more in my ABF last week, but someone's commented, well, isn't evangelism more active? Isn't it more attack? It is, but here the focus is on the readiness, being ready. It's the type of thing Paul's praying for at the end of this passage, for the boldness. Pray for me also, he says, verse 19, that words may be given me in opening my mouth boldly. And the defensive battle is the battle over nerves and shame and embarrassment that makes us ready to speak the words of the gospel of peace. So this week, we're going to look at the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the spirit. And that's by way of sort of review. And this brings together the panoply. All these pieces work together. They complement each other. Uh, it's not good enough to put on a few of these pieces. Well, I put on pieces one and two. I skipped three. No, it's, it's a full armor. It's holistic. And in one sense, the shield of faith gets singled out for the most intensive treatment in the list. Let me point out to you why that is. First off, it gets this introductory formula. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. And then he tells us why. I mean, compare that with, say, the helmet of salvation, where he just says, receive the helmet of salvation, moves on. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. It's the one piece that we're told why we are to do this. With what purpose to it? Notice the all-inclusive language. All circumstances. All flaming darts. So out of the entire six-piece list of full armor, the shield of faith receives probably the, the most singular treatment. And so let's begin working through this. Let's begin working through this. Now, first off, the concept of shield. The Greek word is clear. You may think of a small circular thing on your arm. This is the big shield. The Greek word actually comes from, for the shield, comes from the word for door. That's a pretty fair image. Picture a door with armbands. That's the type of thing we're talking about. This is basically a mobile wall. That is what faith is likened to, the shield of faith. It's not a small little shield. It's, it's a big shield. And first, I want to draw your attention to the timing. When are we to do this? In all circumstances, constant activity. This isn't something you can do once and be done. I, I picked up the shield of faith last week. It was a Thursday. I remember it clearly. In all circumstances. The picture is, and I think this makes sense with a big heavy shield, you're constantly lifting it up. Because, of course, even a shield as big as a door is only useful if you're directing it at the attack. Even if I'm hiding behind my big door shield, if the enemy's behind me, it's going to serve me no good use. So I'm constantly lifting up the shield. 
And so it's a constant activity. So practically speaking, we are in all circumstances need to actively be lifting up the shield of faith. That's not something you're going to do passively. That's not something that's going to happen by letting go and letting God. You and I need to actively be lifting up the shield of faith. And I'll try to get to what I think that means in a moment. But understand, Paul's emphatic here. This is something happening all the time. Every day. Ten times a day. Twenty times a day. This is not something you can do or move past. Now, I have a typo here. It says identify. It meant to be identity. What is the shield of faith? Um, first off, I think that the notion is the shield, which is faith. It's apposition. Or your blank here, I believe the identity of the shield of faith is our trust in the promises of God. Our trust in the promises of God. Now, why do I emphasize that? Well, I'm trying to contrast that between just some sort of general trust. You meet plenty of people. I have faith in God. Or I have faith this is going to turn out okay. When the Bible speaks of faith, and you can test this, go to Hebrews 11, the hall of faith. In every instance, it's Faith in response to something God has said. It's not faith in your feeling. It's not faith in your intuition. It is always, when the Bible talks about the faith that saves, and the Bible talks about the faith that God commends and is pleased by, in every instance, it is in response to what God has said. So this isn't just faith as in confidence or faith as in your feelings. But definitionally, it's a shield of faith that receives and believes what God has said. Okay? That's the first thing. The shield is our trust in the promises of God. Our trust in the promises of God. This also means then that not only are we saved by faith, we hold that you hear the word of the gospel and you believe it and you turn from everything else you are trusting and everything else you're building a life on, you turn and trust into Jesus. You're saved by faith. Ephesians 2 8. We're also sanctified. And we have victory in the battle through faith. It's not as though faith is something for the entrance in the Christian life. And then we move on to other things. Rather, we need to be a people of faith every day and always. We grow in faith. We have victory in the battle by faith. Okay, so the timing is a constant activity. We need to be doing this all the time. What is it? What's the identity of the shield? It's our trust in the promises of God. What's his purpose? To nullify the lies and power of temptation. Paul makes a vivid word picture here of how this works. Pictures of a soldier under siege and flaming fiery arrows are raining down. And we have a shield that can extinguish them. Okay, three things to note here. First, the protection is promised. The ESV doesn't bring this out as clearly, but what you actually have is a future verb. Um, Lift up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish. There's no no possibility of failure here. The, The grammar is clear. If you lift up this shield, you will be able to extinguish the darts. In other words, here's a promise from God. This isn't just a strategy that has good results. This is a guarantee. The shield of faith, if you lift it up, will enable you to extinguish the darts of the evil one. Comprehensive protection. You will extinguish them. That's the promise. The Bible makes similar promises elsewhere. James 4, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. So so take heart. 
This is medicine, to switch the analogy. This is a military strategy that is guaranteed to succeed. If you will do this, if you will obey this command, if you will put on this armor, you will extinguish the fiery darts of the enemy. Promise protection. Also, it's comprehensive protection. Notice again the double all. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. What that means is there aren't some temptations and some trials that you use the shield of faith for and others that you don't. It's a promised success, and it's a promised success for every fiery dart, not just some of them. This is always, this starts to explain why in every circumstance we lift it up, because it always will succeed. It, there are no darts that are so fiery, so burning, that the shield of faith can't resist them. It's comprehensive, all the flaming darts, every trial, every temptation, every difficulty. And notice its power. You know, you might be happy if a shield simply deflected arrows. They they bounced off. But even though the devil himself, that's your blank, all the attacks of the devil, even though the devil himself is hurling them, the evil one, this shield extinguishes them. Doesn't simply block them aside. It puts them, they're, they're out. And you can imagine a fiery arrow is worse than, I mean, I wouldn't want to be shot with an arrow, but an arrow that can both penetrate you and light you on fire is frightening. And this shield extinguishes them. It extinguishes them. It's a picture of utter triumph. It nullifies the attack. It's not that it just withstands them, but when a fiery arrow is extinguished, what's it not doing? Burning you, right? An extinguished arrow isn't burning anything. And so the emphasis is not just that it stops it from getting you through and killing you, but its power is extinguished. It nullifies the arrow. Okay? Now I want to take a moment here and try to bring this all together because so far this is pretty abstract. It's a nice picture. It's a picture of a big shield. It's a picture of big fire arrows going poof, being put out. But what does it look like? I want to suggest to you three steps of how this works, how, you'd, how you would uh, pick up the shield of faith to extinguish the fiery darts of the evil one. First, you need to identify the tempting lie. You need to identify the tempting lie. Oftentimes, because our hearts are deceitful and wicked, we only experience the results of temptation. What I mean by that is, let's use an example. Let's say during this pandemic crisis, you've either lost your job or your income's been severely reduced. And so you find yourself struggling with sleeplessness and anxiety and fear, even some frustration. You, you are also dealing with some depression. Now you're experiencing the fruit of this trial, the fruit of the trial being the fear, the anxiety, the panic, the, the uncertainty, the depression. But undergirding all of that is a truth claim. All temptation deals ultimately with truth. In one sense, you could go back to the garden, chapter 3 of Genesis, where Satan says, did God really say? No, you won't die. And so you got to identify the truth claim. And so in my example of a lost income, I think the claim that temptation will be making is something like, um, you need money to be safe. Money will protect you. Money can be trusted, and money will deliver. Without money, 
you are in danger, you are exposed, that something like that. And I'm not suggesting that, you know, we should not earn a living and, and work. Let's assume you're doing what you can. But listen to Hebrews 13.5. And I think this is how you can lift up the shield of faith. Because blank two, you need to know what God's word says in response to this. So, so there is the claim of temptation. Money will deliver you. More so than God. You can trust in money. more than God doesn't always answer your prayers. God doesn't always have your best interests at heart. Money does. Money will get what you want. You can buy what you want with money. Money will deliver. Money will save. And we begin to believe those lies. We become anxious because we don't have it. Listen to Hebrews 13, 5. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You see the implication there? Keep your life free from the love of money. Why? He will not leave or forsake you. What's the implication? My lack of faith that I can count on God is precisely why I might start trusting in money. He says, no, no, don't do that. He won't leave or forsake you. He won't. And so you lift up the shield of faith by identifying at the root of my anxiety, at the root of my fear, is a lack of confidence that God's going to take care of me. And that's going to tempt me to put my faith and hope in money. And you lift up the shield of faith saying, no, no, he will not leave or forsake me. I, I dare not shift my hope from him to money. That, that's, that's how it works. You, you extinguish the dark with truth. And then point three, you've got to believe then what God's word says. Lord, help me to believe this. You, I recognize that the root of my fear and anxiety is a lack of confidence that you'll be there for me, a lack of confidence that you will not forsake me. And this is tricky because oftentimes the lies of temptation are not explicitly clear to us. They're not explicitly clear to us. Proverbs 20, verse 5. The purposes of a man's heart is like deep water, and a man of understanding will draw it out. Oftentimes what I'm doing, I'm doing pastoral counseling, helping people figure out what's going on under the surface as they experience the emotions. What are you believing? What are you thinking? Let me give you a couple more examples. I want to make this practical. Okay? I gave you my first example. My second example. Um, imagine, I'm sure this would never happen, but imagine a wife has a difficult husband. He's, uh, he's foolish at times. He's, um, he, he requires and he wants things that seem to be unreasonable. And her temptation is to grumble, resist, um, stand up for herself in the sense of, I'm not going to do I'm going to do this. We're not talking about anything fundamentally sinful. Um, Just his expectations, his priorities are stupid. So what's the lie? The lie is something like, um, it's better for me to be right than obedient. The lie is, we only need to give respect to those who earn it. The lie is, God's requirements for my role in marriage is dependent upon my husband's qualifications. It's something like that, right? Those would be the lies you'd be wrestling with. Because you'd be saying, well, because you're stupid, I don't need to listen to you. Because I'm smarter than you. Because you don't deserve it. So what's truth? First Peter 3, 4. Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is 
in God's sight is very precious? What's true? I should care more about what God thinks of my behavior than what basis my submission or obedience to my husband is. Because God's watching, and there's something that God finds beautiful. And so if you find yourself not caring about that, that's identifying even further. I, I care more about my rights than what God thinks of me. So you lift up the shield of faith, the truth. You've got to identify the lie of the temptation. Or, let's put it now to husbands. Um, your wife thinks she's smarter than you, and maybe she is. Your wife thinks she's more spiritual than you. Maybe she is. Consequently, she resists your attempts to study, read the Bible with her. She says she gets more out of it on her own. And being rejected in that sense, you're tempted to just give up. You know, she's rebellious. She knows what she wants. She doesn't want my leadership. And so if she ever changes her mind, I'll be here. What's the lie? Again, that this God's instructions are pragmatic. And if they don't make your life easier, he doesn't want us to do them. The truth would be what, husbands? Your fundamental job as a husband is to model and image your savior. Your success or failure as a husband is dependent on how accurately, how faithfully you imitate Christ. When Christ died for us, did we want his help? While we were his enemies, he died for us. When we run from his shepherding, does he give up and say, you know what, the the one sheep left the fold. When it wants to come back, I'll go get it. He leaves the 99 and he goes and he gets it. A husband who's imitating Christ can never give up on sanctifying his wife. And so you've got to identify what the temptations. The temptations, this is not fun. I don't enjoy this. I don't enjoy being rejected. I don't enjoy being disrespected. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Died for her. So what's the truth? I should expect suffering in this. God has called me to this type of suffering. Rather than being surprised, rather than being aghast, what, what did you expect? Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it. You know that involved a crucifixion, right? That's truth you can lift up in faith. And, and God is pleased by this. And God will give grace for this. And you could bring up so many other truth claims for this. I'll give you one other example. Um, you go to your favorite store, and they've got a new requirement that you need to wear a mask to go inside. Now, I'm not saying you need to do that. It's your choice to pick and choose where you shop, where you frequent. I, I don't think there's anything right or wrong with that. But now what you're wrestling with is anger and frustration. Oh, come on. My favorite coffee shop, my favorite bakery, Costco, whatever, wants me to wear a mask to go inside. They've bought into this tomfoolery too. And you start grumbling. Well, so what's the lie? I have a right to expect people to be reasonable. I have a right to expect it my way. I deserve to be able to go into Costco without a mask. I have that right. I deserve it. What's rooted in all of those lies? Self-righteousness. I deserve. I expect. I demand. I must have. We, we deserve nothing but wrath. By all means, pick and choose where you shop, where you frequent, according to what pleases you, what, what your standards are. There's nothing wrong there. But the grumbling, the complaining, the anger, that's all wicked. And it all comes from self-righteousness. I deserve, I want, I must have, I ought to expect. It's only reasonable. That's the lie. You need to root it in self-righteousness. This is about me. This is about me. 
And then you hold up the shield of faith by speaking truth to it. We don't have time, but I'd, I'd commend you to look at Luke 4, where three times Satan tempts Jesus, and then every time he speaks truth to the temptation. You know, you don't deserve to be hungry. You're the Messiah. Turn these stones into bread. My greatest sustaining need is not food. It's God's word. You deserve to be vindicated. Jump off the temple. Let everyone see you're the Lord's anointed in whom he delights. I shall not put God to the test. So we hold up the shield of faith by identifying the temptation. By identifying God's word. You've got to study scripture because you've got to know what God's word says. You've got to speak truth to that line. You've got to believe it. That's how the shield of faith works. And what Paul is saying, what God is saying, is if you endeavor to do this, you will succeed. I don't care how great the temptation is. It will extinguish it. It will nullify it. This is God's prescription for enduring the attack of the enemy. Lift up the shield of faith and watch the attacks get extinguished. Okay? Moving on, take the helm of salvation. Take the helmet of salvation. What does that refer to? I think, go back to Isaiah 59, this is again another reference to what we saw last week. Paul calling this armor God's armor is not for nothing. He's already shown us in the first three pieces God himself wearing it. We see the same thing here. In Isaiah 59, the Lord God, responding to wickedness and sinfulness in his people, gets ready to fight and judge them. Pick it up in verse 14. Justice is turned back, and righteousness stands far away. For truth is stumbled in the public square, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. There's social injustice. There's wickedness in the people. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him. That there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. So God put on a helmet of salvation. And so your blank here is God wears this helmet to war and judge. And that should be encouraging. It's not as though God has got the super duper weapons when he fights and we get some nerf. We get the same armor that God uses when he battles. God wears this helmet to war and to judge. So what is the identity of this helmet? I believe this helmet is trust in past, present, and future deliverance. This helmet is trust in past, present, and future deliverance. Now turn in Ephesians back to chapter 1. The Bible can speak of salvation in both the past, present, and future tense. It is biblical to say as a Christian, I have been saved. It is biblical to say, I am being saved. It is biblical to say, I hope and trust I will be saved. It refers to distinct realities, but all three of those statements are biblical. And so the first blank, we have been saved and sealed. And Ephesians 1, 3 makes that explicitly clear. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us 
in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. If you're standing in Christ Jesus today, if you have turned in faith to him, if you've trusted in the good news of the gospel, if you've trusted in Jesus, you have been saved. By which we mean your sins have been forgiven. God's wrath, his just wrath at your sin, is taken away by the blood of Christ. You're brought near. You've become his son, his daughter, his beloved child. You've been saved. That reality is true. I think in the present context, though, he's probably more emphasizing the next reality. Turn to chapter 2. So you have been saved and sealed. We also have been raised and seated with Christ. And you'll notice that the same group of people, our enemies that we saw two weeks ago, show up in this context. I actually want to start back in chapter 1, a little further back in chapter 1. Remember the prayer that Paul ends chapter 1 with. Um, pick it up in verse 15. For this reason, because I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit and wisdom of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes your hearts enlightened that you may know. Now remember, there are three things he wants us to know. So his prayer is that through the Holy Spirit, we would better know and understand what is the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and then verse 9, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? God wants you to know. Paul wants you to, through the Holy Spirit, have a better understanding of the might and the magnitude of God's power towards us. And then he gives us an example of that power and watch as some of our foes show up. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. So God demonstrated this power by raising Christ from the dead and then raising and exalting him above all of the arrayed foes that we have. He put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. Okay? Which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Then chapter 2 begins with our dead former state. Remember, we were slaves to the system. We were dead in our sins. We were following the desires of the mind and the body. And how did God fix that? He did the same thing to us that his power did to Jesus. He raised us. Now here, he made us spiritually alive. But God, verse 4, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And then he describes that as salvation by grace you've been saved and raised us with him with him where you saw at the end of chapter one above all powers and authorities and dominions we know christ has been raised above them and now he's we're raised with him so ipso facto where are we in christ we're raised above them and seated us with him in the heavenly places 
Back in our passage, where does Paul say our battle takes place? In heavenly places. So this is also part of our salvation. Look at verse 8 of chapter 2. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. And here's the logic. You have been raised with Christ, united with Christ. He has been placed in triumph and authority over these enemies. And in our union with him, we are there too. Therefore, we ought to be able to expect to triumph over them as well. The helmet of the salvation is we have triumphed in Christ. The enemy has been dealt the death blow. Christ has been inaugurated as king and we are joined and united with him through faith. We have been raised and seated with Christ. And we have confidence in that reality. Confidence that we've been guaranteed victory. I think you fight a war differently when you know your side's already won. Also, the Bible speaks of salvation in the future sense. That we will receive our inheritance in him. And we can fight with that confidence knowing that we will receive our reward. Nothing can take us from his hand. Listen to Paul's language. Blessed be the God and Father. Chapter 1, verse 3 again. Of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then look to the end of this. Verse 13. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And so you receive the helmet of salvation by which you are confident. Nothing I do can snatch me from his hands. I am his. He has redeemed me. He has forgiven me. And I've been united with Christ, raised with him. And so as great as this enemy is in Christ, I can expect the triumph. I can expect to succeed and stay standing. And no matter what assault comes at me, no matter what wounds I take, nothing can strip my reward from me. And you fight in that confidence with that helmet of salvation on. Point C, we must encourage ourselves with these things. We must encourage ourselves with these things. Just look a little later in chapter 6. Verse 21, their final greeting. So that you may also know how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, that he may encourage your hearts. Remember how the body builds itself up in love back in chapter 4? It speaks the truth and love to itself. A joy, a confidence in our salvation, past, present, and future, is a key element in persevering in trial, in persevering in temptation. And again, this is something we're doing regularly. You can't say, well, I was happy in my salvation two months ago, so I can check that one off. If your heart's like mine, it waxes and wanes. It's fickle. Contentment in Christ can be there one day and gone the other or the next we must encourage ourselves with these things. According to Hebrews 10.25, this is the primary reason we gather together, not neglecting to meet together as this is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Or 1 Thessalonians 5, 9-11, connecting this future glory with present encouragement. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we awake or sleep, 
by which he means live or die, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. So we, we take the helmet of salvation, and you're aware of the salvation God has accomplished at the cross and your forgiveness of sins. You're aware of the salvation he's giving you now as you are freed from sin's dominion. You were a slave to sin. You were dead. Now you're alive. You're united with Christ. Christ has been raised above them. And you will be saved. You will be transformed and delivered. You will inherit a kingdom and treasure which moth does not eat. These things are true. And, and that hope, that confidence is a necessary element in your battle and temptation. Finally, take up the sword of the Spirit. Take up the sword of the Spirit. Um, you're blank here, and we won't, we won't turn to Isaiah, although I will turn to Revelation. The Messiah wields this sword. Now, it shouldn't surprise you that the word of God is equated to a sword. I just want you to know that from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, this is God's weapon of choice. Turn to Revelation 19, and while you turn there, when God enters into his monumental act of creation, whereby he creates the heavens and the earth and the distant stars, how does he do it? He speaks. When God creates his people, it's vividly seen in the Valley of Dry Bones with um, Ezekiel, what does he do to bring the bones to life? He speaks over them. How does God create his people today? We hear his word. And when God shows up to destroy the gathered world forces, what weapon does he wield? Let's take a look. Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven opened, and, the whole, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. In righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed, he, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. The name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And that's his weapon. It's his word. We sing to him, a mighty fortress is our God. And we speak of the devil. One little word shall fell him. In one sense, this battle as, as, as intense as it looks, if you pictured this cinematographically on a movie, you see the armies lined up and it would be, and it's over. So in one sense, anticlimactically, there's no battle and the shots aren't fired. He on the horse speaks. And it is done. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. The same weapon that the Messiah wields when he returns is the weapon we are called to make use of. Point B. It is a precision instrument made for close combat. Unlike the word for shield, which is a huge door-like thing, this is not a big two-handed broadsword. This is, is a short sword, and it's meant for close combat. This is something you draw when someone is close enough that you're wrestling. I mean, a big sword, if you're in close combat, you're not going to be able to get in and wield. This is the shorter sword. And other scripture makes it clear that this is, is for precision. This isn't something you just take heads off with. This is for parrying, for deft blows and thrusts. And 
Whereas Hebrews 4, 12, 13 says, The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This is a sword that can separate bones and marrow, divide joints. It's a sharp two-edged precision instrument for close combat. Which means, again, in your struggle and my struggle with temptation, with trials, we, we need to grow in our skill with the word. We don't need to grow in our skill with Dr. Phil or Oprah. We need to grow in our skill with the word. This is the weapon that will succeed. This is, this is God's weapon of choice. This is what he'll defeat every nation, every king, arrayed against him to cast off his chains. And he offers it to us. And, and what folly when we set it aside for our own plans and schemes. This is the word that comes from the Spirit. When it says the sword of the Spirit, it means the sword that which comes from the Spirit. The Spirit inspired the writers of Scripture to speak. And the Spirit, even in our life, primarily works through the Word. Remember in John 16, Jesus said, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you in all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. The spirit primarily ministers in our lives through the word, not through direct revelations, but through the already existing revelation of God's word as he convicts us, as he opens our eyes to understand it, as he brings it to mind in a time of trial or temptation. Point D then, in a defensive battle, here's your blank, in a defensive battle, this is our only offensive weapon. In a defensive battle, this is our only offensive weapon. Now, it's still fundamentally defensive because you're being attacked, you're being assaulted, the enemy's coming to you. But this is the only thing which can harm the enemy. The shield can nullify his attack, but the sword can mortally wound him. And so I want to suggest to you then not to arm yourself with the wisdom of men. Do not arm yourself with the wisdom of men. Let's pause for a moment. We, we will sing our closing song. I say it to the worship team because some of them are in the gym um, and they're probably wondering. But a lot of what we're talking about spiritual warfare in a lot of cases in today's world is called counseling. I mean, think about it, right? Anxiety, fear, depression, anger. Those are all Issues, I say, are spiritual battles, and yet they'd firmly be put under the, the rubric of, of counseling and therapy. And so when we're dealing with those trials, temptations to fear, to anxiety, to covet, to anger, to lust, to impatience, do we trust in the wisdom of men or do we trust in God's word? Do we trust that God has actually given us help? That's part of the problem is so many today think the Bible has nothing to say. If it's counseling, the Bible has nothing to say to it. We need professionals. God's given us his sword. And, and we have a weapon which will defeat the armies of the world at our disposal. And yet we would lay it down because Dr. Phil said something catchy. There's a whole message here on that, but we'll move on. Do not arm yourself with the wisdom of men. Don't think that somehow scripture is good to become a Christian, but then to grow in holiness, you need something else. Trust in God's own weapon of choice. 
I could, I could show you again and again and again and again in Scripture the statements God himself makes of his word. Let me just read one to you. Jeremiah twenty three twenty nine, Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer which breaks the rock in pieces? This is the tool we have available in fighting the enemy. We can really do damage to him this way. We can really counterattack. Don't, don't trust in something else. It's not as though God uses something even better when he fights. This is his same armor. It's the full armor of God. And so as I call the worship team up um, for us to sing the reality that as we face life's trials on our own strength, we, we will fail. But God alone can rescue. He's given us his armor, his help. What we need to do is be faithful to pick it up and put it on every day, all the time. We're going to sing our closing song now, celebrating the great truth that God alone can rescue. Please stand with me and sing.